Amen. Friends, let's go to the Lord now. Our Savior and our refuge and our helper. Let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now as we look to your word. And we acknowledge that in this moment, as in every moment, we are absolutely desperate for your help, for the power of your Holy Spirit and for your grace. We pray, God, that by your spirit, you would move in power amongst us now as we look to your word. We pray that you would fill me with your spirit as the preacher. This morning, I am a fallen man preaching to fallen men. I am a struggling sinner preaching to struggling sinners. And so our hope certainly is not in me, the instrument. Our hope is in you, our good and powerful God. We pray, Father, for your spirit to fall on all of us that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see what is true and what is right. And that we might have hearts that love you and love your word and are thrilled and convicted as is appropriate. Come now, God, and minister to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the title of this sermon, you've seen it in, in your bulletin, Jesus, God's Holy One. The humorous side of me, I almost want to entitle the, the sermon, you probably think this psalm is about you. <laughs> or even more provocatively, you probably think this psalm is about David. We are making our way through the, the psalms in an ongoing way here at CBC, so the Psalms are kind of unique. There's 150 of those in Scripture. And we started a number of months, even a year and a half plus ago, uh, starting to chip away at the 150 books in the Psalter. Or excuse me, the 150 Psalms in the Psalter. And so various guys have preached in this series. It's an ongoing effort that I trust will take us years. But for the next 10 times that I am in the pulpit, so this will take us into early next year, uh, I'm going to be preaching 10 sermons in the Psalms, two from each of the five books. So book one of the Psalms, Psalm 1 through 41, preach two from that. Book two, three, four, five, and so forth. This series we have simply called the Psalms, which is appropriate for obvious reasons. There's a part of me that would almost want to call that sermon series Christ in the Psalms. It might be a little bit redundant because as we talk about so often here at CBC, we aim to preach Christ from the whole Bible. So we could call every series Christ in fill in the blank. And what I mean by preaching Christ from the whole Bible, I just want to be really clear to continue to, to help us as a congregation think about this. What I mean and what we mean when we say that is that we preach the scripture from a redemptive historical perspective. It means that we aim to preach every passage of the Bible with the main point of the Bible in view. Now, when I say it like that, it sounds like common sense, right? But it doesn't, doesn't always happen, sadly, in, in many churches. And it would only be by God's grace that we would accomplish that task here. It is our aim, and we need God's help. Very simply, we preach God's plan, God's story of redemption with Jesus at the center every week. And we help one another see how various sections of Scripture fit in that great story. At times, friends, this kind of preaching, maybe, maybe I'm alone in, in thinking this or observing this. At times, this kind of preaching can be offensive to people. 
It can bother us. For those who have grown up in the church or for those who have spent much time in the church, it's not what we're used to hearing. For many of us, anyway. For many of us, our ears are accustomed to hearing preaching that honestly puts the Christian at the center and not Christ. That puts the Christian life at the center and not Jesus and his accomplishments. Of course, we want to preach the Christian life. We want to preach all of the entailments of this great plan of redemption, but never remove Christ from the center. With God's help, as I've already alluded to, we're not going to do that kind of thing here, put the Christian in the center rather than Christ. In a maybe punchy way to put it, I don't like to be punchy, but a punchy way to put it is we're not going to allow you or anyone to be the hero of Jesus' story. Only Christ is that. Only Christ is the hero of the story of the world that God has made. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do, open them up to Psalm 16. Psalm number 16 is where we will be spending our time together today. And as you open up there, I want to go ahead and have you turn your eyes towards the heading, not the one that's in your Bible. You will not abandon my soul or something like that. But the inspired heading that says a miktam of David. All right, just time out button really quickly. I'm hearing a lot of reverb. Is that just me? Okay, maybe we can tweak that just to try to eliminate distraction. Thank you, brother. Friends, as you've made your way there now to Psalm 16, I want to just draw your attention, as I've already said, to that inspired heading, a miktem of David. A miktem is just a musical term. Uh, It would have had to do with how they would have sung this, perhaps a kind of tune specifically even, that they would have used to sing this this psalm, because these were written, as we know, for corporate worship. The psalms were. They were written in verse and not prose. And they were written often to be not only recited, but sung. And so that is what that term is referring to, a musical element. But you also see of David right there in that inspired heading. So we know by God's spirit who wrote this psalm. David is the author. Well, who is David? Is none other than King David. It is David of whom we've even sung today. David's son, yet David's Lord. We've sung about the Christ even in that way. David was, in his day, God's anointed, God's chosen man. King of Israel. King of God's people. And this is all by way of kind of a preface to Psalm 16. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I want us to think together for just a moment about its author. Let's think about David together for just a minute to kind of set the table for the rest of our time today. Remember that Saul was the very first king of Israel. David was not the first king of Israel. Saul was. God would reject Saul. Saul was a very impressive man from a human level. Even his height alone. He stood like his head was above everybody. I mean, most people came up to his shoulders, we read in Scripture. So he was an imposing Very impressive man. He's the kind of king that men look for. An impressive man in a worldly way. God then would provide for himself a king from the sons of Jesse, who lived outside of Bethlehem. Jesse had a number of sons. God sent his prophet Samuel to anoint one of Jesse's sons. We read of that in 1 Samuel 16. And though David was handsome, we are told that in the text, he was also very young and in many ways unimpressive. 
And so God told Samuel to not judge Jesse's sons based on appearance. Do not judge these men the way that men judge them. Because I, the Lord, do not see as men see. I look on the heart. So at the Lord's instruction, Samuel anointed David. The Spirit of God, we're told in the text. Again, this is 1 Samuel 16. You can read this for yourself today. The Spirit of God rushed on David, we're told, and was on David from that day forward to empower and anoint him for the task that he had been set aside to do. David was a man after God's own heart because God made him that way. David was a man after God's own heart because God saw to it that he would be fashioned that way. In other words, God produced David. David did not produce David. God chose David to bring about his own purposes of redemption. David was very much an instrument in the hands of God to bring about the redemption plan. So immediately following David's anointing, 1 Samuel 16, where do we come? 1 Samuel 17. One of the most famous stories in the Bible, especially the flannel board in Sunday school. David and Goliath, right? Now I'm saying all this, I'm just going to go ahead and step out for a second and tell you, I'm saying all of this to illustrate a point, right? I'm saying all of this to try to answer the question, what was the point of David's life? The author of Psalm 16. What was the point of his life? So immediately after he's anointed, we come to the account of David and Goliath. So the question about that famous story is what is going on there? What's happening there? Well, We know that God, eventually years later, would make a covenant with David. That one, a son from his line would reign forever on the throne of righteousness. The Messiah, the Savior, would come from David's lineage. God would promise that. In that sense, redemption depended upon David staying alive. Redemption depended upon David and just the circumstances of his life very much. It depended on his ancestry. And so the story of David and Goliath, and I would even say more importantly, the story of David's life was and is about what God would accomplish. It's God's show. It's God's movie, if you will. So then the question, how do we come to it? How do we come to this great story, this great movie that God has made and is telling? Even in this one episode of David and Goliath. I mean, to speak, honestly, what we ought to do is we ought to come with a giant tub of popcorn and our big thing of Coke, get on the edge of our seat and watch what is God going to do? What is God going to do in this crazy situation where the Philistine army is defiling the armies of the living God and there's this great champion Goliath, this giant of a man. Everybody's terrified of him. Nobody will fight him. What is God going to do? So we get to the edge of our seat, popcorn ready. God's promise in that moment hung on a stone in a sling. God's promise in that moment hung on a young shepherd boy Unimpressive. Nobody noticed this guy. Nobody cared about him. A prophet had to go out into the cut outside of Bethlehem to anoint this guy. And God's promise hangs on him in the face of this great champion, this great warrior, in the face of the army of the Philistine nation. 
the people's champion, Saul, is hiding and cowering at this moment. David is there, essentially bringing food to his older brothers. That's why he's even around. And then he overhears what's going on. Goliath walks out as he apparently had done a number of times and challenged the army of Israel. Is anybody willing to fight me? And David, because he has God's spirit on him, remember, God's spirit is on David. And so David is worked up. Is nobody going to stand up to this guy? This guy's defiling the armies of the living God. Is nobody going to fight him? And so David takes Saul's armor and goes out to fight Goliath. It doesn't look good. I mean, from, from the perspective of like the nation of Israel, but more importantly, from the perspective of God's promise. It looks like the light's about to go out. The candle's about to be extinguished. And then a rock hits a giant man in the head. And he falls down. And David goes with his sword and cuts Goliath's head off. We don't put that on the flannel board. That's too offensive. He cuts his head off. He cuts off the head of the champion of the enemy's army. In a moment where it looked like all was lost, God overcame. God's enemies would then flee. God's people and God's promise were preserved. That is what's going on in that story. And so, with all due respect, to come to that story and say, hey, Here's some pretty good stuff we can do is absolutely ridiculous. Not that we can't glean wisdom, not that we can't infer things, but to preach that text in any other way than from that redemptive historical what is God doing perspective is irresponsible. I would even say that to hold up the courage and the valor of David, as awesome as those things are, to hold those things up as the point of that story is also insane. As I said, I went through all of that to illustrate a point. What was the purpose of David's life? David existed, most fundamentally, David existed to bring about God's plan of redemption. He was an instrument in God's hand to bring about redemption. He existed to get us to the Messiah. From His line would come the One, the Anointed One, the King of Kings. And David existed as well in the circumstances of his life and the roles that he would play. He existed to point us to the Messiah who would come. He would point us to the greater king and the greater deliverer and the greater protector and the greater champion, the greater savior who would come many centuries later. David was chosen by God and used by God to bring about redemption and point us to the redeemer. And it is that David who wrote Psalm 16. So that matters. You want to talk about authorial intent, we've got to talk about it most fundamentally. What did God by His Spirit intend? But then also, if you even want to talk about authorial intent, the author of the letter, we best understand why he's even in the Bible. Mm -hmm. 
So before we go any further, friends, before I even read the entire psalm for us, I want to point us specifically to verse 10. Because verse 10 is the linchpin verse in this psalm. I would argue that verse 10 of Psalm 16 is one of the more substantial verses, significant verses in the entire Old Testament. I mean, in terms of how we understand God's plan of redemption. It's a big deal. So let's look at it together and we're going to examine it and allow it to inform the way that we look at the psalm. So I'm going to read verse 10 for us where David writes, For you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now the first part of that statement, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's a strong statement. That's a strong statement about even eternal Bodily life with God, that's a big deal. But any, any Old Testament saint could have said the same. Any Old Testament saint could have made that claim. Job says something, for example, very similar in Job chapter 19, verses 25 and following. Job says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, my body has decomposed, right, Yet in my flesh, I shall see God. I will in my body will see God again when my Redeemer stands on earth, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, meaning I will see the Lord. So Job made a similar claim to what David made in the first part of verse 10. You're not going to abandon me to the grave. You're not going to leave me. But then the second part, or let your Holy One see corruption. That is astonishing. What David is saying there is that God will not allow his Holy One to see corruption or to see the pit. He will not allow his body, God's Holy One, to see decay. His body would not decay. So how should we understand that? That is an astonishing statement. I mean, the fact that it's just stated like that, unqualified, (laughs) is in and of itself almost breathtaking. So how should we understand? This is where God in his kindness, in his word, he gives us everything that we need to know. We've already looked at one text today, Acts chapter 13. I want us to turn to another text very briefly, Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there. I want you to be able to put your eyes on it. Bruce, I did not tell you beforehand that we were going to do this. But we are looking at Acts chapter 2 and verse 24 and following. If you're able to put those up on the screen for those who don't have Bibles. Listen to these words, friends. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. And he's going to help us understand Psalm 16.10. Beginning in verse 24. God raised him up. He's talking about Jesus. God raised up Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Held by death, that is. For David says concerning him, David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. He's citing Psalm 16 here. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
And then Peter goes on to unpack that. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, that second part of Psalm 1610 is not true of David. David was not talking about David when he said that he would not see corruption. Because David died, he's in the ground, he's in the ground still, his body's composed, his grave's still there. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, Paul, or excuse me, Peter says, David was prophesying in Psalm 16, at least in verse 10, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Praise God for that. Let's go ahead and flip over to Acts 13 again. I'm not going to read as large of a section as we read before. But I want you to be able to put your eyes on these things. This is how, friends, you study your Bible. You want to learn how to interpret your Bible. You need to practice and exercise things like this. You interpret Scripture with Scripture, right? Why would you work at interpreting a text without going to the inspired interpretation of the Old Testament, which is found in the New, right? So here we are. Acts chapter 13. We'll begin with our purposes here in verse 32. Acts 13, 32. This is Paul now speaking. So you have the two great leaders of the early church, Peter and Paul. Here we go. This is Paul's take by the Spirit. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us by their children by raising Jesus. God's plan of redemption accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's Isaiah 55. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now, here we go. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And God's people said, Amen. So it's quite clear. Did David fully understand everything that he wrote in the 10th verse of Psalm 16? I don't know. We don't know. I would even say it might be doubtful. I would say it is doubtful that he fully understood everything that he was writing. That happens with the prophets. They, they write better than they even fully understand and have to look into the word itself to see, try to discern what God is saying even through them. It's pretty remarkable. But whether David fully understood what he wrote, it does not affect how we understand it. Does that make sense? Even if he did not fully understand everything that he was writing in the 10th verse of Psalm 16, we are told by the apostles, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how we should understand Psalm 16.10. And we are told that in that verse, David is prophesying about the resurrection of the Christ and that through the resurrection of the Christ, 
God's sons and daughters would be brought to glory. That the people of God would be rescued. That they would be set free through the resurrection of the Christ. Even set free from things that they could not be set free from through the law of Moses. And so at this point, friends, with all of that by way of preface and introduction and setting the stage, let's read the psalm together. Beginning with verse 1. Actually beginning with the heading again. And Mictam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So we've already considered the, the preface and even the heading of the psalm. And now I want us to make our way through it. And we're going to have four more headings here. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. So first, I want us to consider David's relationship to God. Let's consider first David's relationship to God. We'll be looking at verses one and two for just a few moments. You see, David begins by crying out to God and asking the Lord to preserve him. He understands that it is God and God alone who preserves him. Now, before I even go any further, this text is beautiful on so many levels. And one of them is that it, we're going to think about this together. It is a beautiful depiction of the life of faith. A beautiful depiction of the life of faith. Of trusting completely in God and knowing that God is sovereign over absolutely everything in his world. As has been said by men greater than me, there is not a rogue molecule in the universe. God reigns and rules perfectly over it all. He accomplishes all of his purposes, not just some or even most, all. He is never thwarted, ever. He never has to come up with plan B. It's all plan A. He never has to mop something up in such a way like he didn't see it happening. He didn't foresee it. He didn't ordain it. It's like, oh, that's a mess. I need to clean that up. Never happens with God, ever. So David knows that. It's like you read this song through those lenses. It's everywhere. The great comfort for David is the fact that God is God. And that God has him. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So not only does God preserve David, God is David's refuge. He is his hope, his harbor. He is his savior. This theme of refuge, yes, brother, it's all throughout the Psalms, and it is all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout the Old Covenant. 
We take refuge in God as our protector and as our preserver with respect to our circumstances and our provision and all of those kinds of things. That's absolutely true. And perhaps even more importantly, we take refuge in God as our savior. He is our refuge from sin. He is our refuge from ourselves. My goodness. We need to be saved from ourselves and protected. And God is that refuge. And what's remarkable, like mind blown, is the fact that God is the refuge for his people from God's very own wrath. It's pretty cool. We take refuge in God. We trust him. We hope in him. More precisely, we trust, we hope, we rest in the son of God. And we find shelter from the wrath of God that we deserve. Psalm 2.12 says this. Kiss the sun, meaning the sun, not the sun in the sky, the son of God, the anointed one. Kiss the sun, the Messiah, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You don't take refuge in him, watch out. His wrath is real. You take refuge in him, you are blessed. Ruth, chapter 2 and verse 12. If you're familiar with that great story, Boaz, who's functioning essentially, he's in the line of David, right? He's, he predates David. Boaz is a wealthy man. He owns land. He says to a Moabite woman, a foreigner, a sojourner, he says to Ruth, when she's gleaning in the fields, which was allowed, he says to her, I've heard about what you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi. I've heard about all these things that you've done. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's one of the most important verses in that book. She has come to the God of Israel, Ruth has, to take refuge under his wings and therefore finds grace. Moving on in verse 2, David says to God, I say to the Lord, God's covenant name is there. You are my Lord. You are my master. I have no good apart from you. What David writes, as I've already said, in these verses and throughout this psalm is a beautiful depiction of the life of faith. God, you are my preserver. I cannot preserve myself. I am powerless to do anything to preserve my life, to change my circumstances often. I certainly can't change things inside of me that cause problems in my life. Preserve me, God. God, you are my refuge. In you do I take refuge. Refuge from circumstances of life in this fallen, broken world, and even more so from the wrath that I deserve and from sin and from death and the evil one in you, I take refuge in you. I place my hope. God, you are my Lord. You are my master. I am your servant. You are the giver of all good things and you yourself are the greatest good in the world. And apart from you, I have nothing good. It's the life of faith, trust and reliance upon God. 
Which brings us now to verse 3. And now we're going to move from considering David's relationship to God to secondly considering David's relationship to others. David's relationship to others. We're going to look now at verses 3 and 4 together. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So firstly, we can think about David's relationship to other people, subset of other people, the saints. How does David relate? In light of all these great high-level truths, David says that he delights in the saints. He delights, in other words, in the people of God. This is, I trust you see this, to delight in the people of God is grace from God. To delight in God, but also in the people of God, to be locked in with the saints is grace from the Lord. That you would have that perspective. David says, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight to say that they are the excellent ones certainly does not mean that in and of themselves they are just awesome and would never fail him. He means certainly they're called saints because God has seen to it that they are declared righteous. And then God, by his spirit, obviously, as we know, works in our lives to change us. The saints are a work in progress. They will not always, even though they are the excellent ones positionally, the saints do not always treat people or even one another excellently. But David, in saying that he delights in the saints, all of the saints in the land, I delight in them. In God, I delight in them, is to say, look, I know those things. I know that the saints are imperfect. I know that there will be difficult times with the saints. But I'm in this with the church in our context, right? I'm in this with the church, ride or die. I'm with the people of God, right? That's grace from God that we would ever have that perspective. But then also David talks about in verse four, his relationship to a different kind of people, a different subset of other people. And those are the ones who run after other gods. Put your eyes there on verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So not only is David clear that he won't participate in the worship of false gods, that you get pretty clearly. I'm not going to mess with their offerings of blood or I'm not even going to speak the names of the false gods. I don't want anything to do with that. Not only is that true. David sees that the sorrows of those who run after other gods multiply. That, too, is grace. It's important. Like, how would you ever come to see that running after other gods brings multiplication of sorrow? How would you ever see that? God gave you eyes to see that. Naturally, we run after everything other than the Lord. And so to have the perspective that to run after anything other than the Lord only brings sorrow is evidence of absolute supernatural grace that he would see that. Because it's so easy, even for the people of God, as we look around in the world and we assess how things are going, what is one of the common refrains in the scripture? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do things seem to go well for people who are wicked? Psalm 73, which is going to be one of the ones we look at in this series. 
Like their eyeballs are fat. They've got so much opulence. They've got so many possessions and they don't know what to do with it all. And they're wicked. What's going on? It's a real question. So David, though, is seeing through that. He's seeing through circumstance to see that there is absolutely nothing but sorrow and emptiness in chasing after anything other than the Lord God Almighty. To see idolatry, and by that I mean that broadly, right? I don't mean just as we might think of it in a narrow way, like the worship of a, of a figure or even a particular false god. I'm talking about any kind of false religion. And secularism is a religion. Any kind of false religion, idolatry, to see that that leads to sorrow is a work of God in your life. To see that the world and all that it offers and all that it holds out to you, to see that it's empty is extraordinary grace. Because every human being in this world naturally chases after it with everything he or she has. I was talking with a brother in this church this week about some of these very realities. Man, I could, I could go a number of ways. I could have gone a number of ways in recent months even. But one of the things that I know is that it's empty. Praise God for that clarity. David is demonstrating that here. But now, as we've thought about David's relationship to God and now also David's relationship to others, let's move on to consider David's blessings. David's blessings. We're going to look now at verses 5 through 8. David says that the Lord is his chosen portion and his cup. So in both of those illustrations that David has there, you obviously are seeing God's provision for David. His cup would certainly signify that. His food and his drink. His portion even is the daily bread, the things that he would need to live. Perhaps portion might even refer to land. Doesn't matter. The point is the same. That God is David's chosen portion. All the things that David needs, he trusts in the Lord for, as we've thought about already. He trusts God to provide for him. And above all things, the Lord is what David seeks. The Lord is who David pursues. He is my chosen portion and my cup. And then he says, David does, that you, God, hold my lot. Again, this text is just dripping with God's providential, sovereign watchfulness and purposefulness over your life and mine. David's life, his circumstances, his provision, his possessions, the outcomes of all things David knows are in the hands of God. That is a tremendous, tremendous comfort to any believer. Because your life is going to be filled with unpleasant things. Your life is it's going to be hard. Sometimes. For some, you may be sitting there thinking, man, my, my life is hard more often than it's not. And to know that those things, those trials, those calamities, some of which your sin contributed to, some of which have happened to you, to know that all of them come from the hand of God and that He intends them for His good purposes and that He is sovereign over it and none of it has surprised Him, that He is not asleep at the wheel and that He's got this is a tremendous comfort to the saints. It's clear in the context that David delights in these realities. He delights that I am the Lord's and He is mine. 
And David goes on to say that the lines, verse 6, have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, he could be talking in some measure, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, about some of the good things that happened in his life circumstantially. But ultimately, David is pointing to an inheritance that is eternal in its nature. Because David, even as evidenced in this psalm, he's living in light of the end of the story. He's living from eternity backwards. We're going to get there more in just a minute. His anchor is in something other than, and in someone, obviously someone other than things of this world, but even in something other than circumstance. David knows that wonderful things await him. He knows that he will not be put to shame. But he goes on in verse 7 to say that I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. So if we're thinking about David's blessings, he has provision. God is his portion. God is his cup, his food, his drink, every good thing. God watches over him and holds his lot. God has promised David a beautiful inheritance. And now we see that one of David's blessings is that God counsels him. God counsels David directly. And he says that the Lord gives me counsel by his spirit. We trust through his word, through other servants of God. It's hard not to think of a prophet who would come to David and talk to him about not just Samuel anointed him, but another prophet that would come to him and say, you know, what you've done with the wife of Uriah is not okay in the sight of the Lord. And David was affected by that word and was led to repent and write one of the most beautiful pieces of repentance it found in Scripture, Psalm 51. And we read also the second half of verse 7 there that in the night, David says, his heart also instructs him. Look at what it says, right? Lest we get carried away with that. Oh, David's heart is just so pure and righteous it counseled him rightly all the time. I don't think that's what it means because when he says in the night, well, what's David doing in the night? David's sleeping at night. And so what he means there, I... I would understand it to mean this is the internal working of God in his heart to guide him as well. The Lord is working counsel in my life even when I'm sleeping. And by that, I think he means more than just dreams and visions. These things that God presses on us in these moments of clarity that he gives us, David's pointing to those things. Verse 8, David says, I have set the Lord always before me and he's at my right hand. So I won't be shaken. So God is always right here. He is right there in front of me. He is the lens in one sense through which I view everything. He's always there. He's primary. He's at my right hand. Which that as we know is an illustration of nearness. It means other things too. But it's right there. It's your right hand means that like you're right there and you're needed. Like my right hand man. Why do we say that? It's because it's a place of significance. So God is right in front of me all the time and he's at my right hand all the time and because of those realities I will not be shaken. You need and I need. One of the reasons that it's imperative for you and for me to gather like this is because we so desperately need the word of God. We absolutely, desperately, as much as we need oxygen, need the Word of God to live. We need the truth of God to live. 
We need God's word throughout the week, absolutely. And we need to sit under the word in this time because this is what God has ordained for us as a way of being shaped and molded, changed. A way that he accomplishes his purposes in our lives is through the preaching of his word in moments like this. And this has nothing to do with the preacher. I, even though I am an instrument through which God speaks, we pray. I too am under the word. When I am in this time, I leave this time affected like you do. Things come out of my mouth I didn't plan to say, or even if I plan to say them, they strike me in ways that are absolutely like mind blowing to me. Just want to be clear about that. We need this the Word of God. We need our minds and our hearts recalibrated. Regularly, which is why we gather regularly, which is why it matters that you would be here. Like, why do you need the church? One of the main reasons is you need the word and you need it in this context. When we go to the Bible and we look at it and we understand it and rejoice over what's there. We have Christ held out for all of us and we behold Him and all of His accomplishments and His righteousness that's credited to us and then our life in reliance upon Him. As we have all of those things held out to us on a weekly basis, friends, it's like putting ballast in a boat. You guys know what that is. Just to be clear, ballast is any kind of heavy thing that would be put in the very bottom, the bowels of a boat to give it stability in rough water. As wind and waves come, and they will in this life, the boat of my life, it might be battered, it might take on a lot of water, but it will not finally be capsized. It will stay afloat because of the ballast that's in it. Ultimately, it's because God keeps, because God works His good purposes in our lives, and He does that through means. One of the main means He uses is the Word. Let's move on, friends, finally now to consider David's hope. David's hope. So we've thought about David's relationship to God, David's relationship to others, David's blessings, and now finally David's hope. Put your eyes on verse 9. David says, therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. The therefore is there for a reason, right? Because of all the things I've already said, my heart's glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh, my body also dwells secure. Why? Verse 10, the ground for, because. Here we go. Because the Lord will not abandon my soul to shield. The Lord doesn't forsake his own. The Lord does not abandon his own even in death. The great enemy. Satan is a great enemy. Sin is a great enemy. The last enemy in the words of scripture is death. Even in the face of the last enemy, God will never leave his saints. David knows that. So even my body that's going to die, it rests securely. It dwells securely because of what God's going to do. Then he says, not only will God not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will God let 
His Holy One see corruption. The Holy One, again, did David fully understand it? Don't know. He knew many things. That he would have a son who would reign forever. He understood that he was God's anointed. But he understood another one was coming. He at least understood those things. And as we thought about earlier, God in his inspired witness of the entire scripture has made crystal clear what these words mean. Because of the resurrection of the Holy One, because of the fact that the Holy One, Jesus, His body would never see decay and it would never see corruption. It was in the tomb, His body, Friday night and Saturday into Sunday morning, did not see decay though. And Jesus got up triumphantly and never saw corruption. Because of that, the children of God, David included, will be resurrected to eternal life. In Christ, we will be raised bodily to live forever. That's how David can say in all things that his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Even in a fallen world where bad things happen, I can say this because I know what God is going to do. He's promised. He's faithful. He'll accomplish it. God goes on, or excuse me, God through David goes on to say, you make known to me the path of life. And that clearly would be eternal life. God reveals to us this path and leads us down it. David also wrote Psalm 25 where he says to God, teach me your ways. Show me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation and you I hope all the day long. David goes on to say that in your presence, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand, near you, in your direct presence, are pleasures forevermore. David trusts that he will live with God forever. We confess Psalm 23 today. What's the last verse of that beautiful psalm say? That I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, right? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knows that there is nothing better than to live in God's direct presence eternally. The reason I say direct presence is because we're in God's presence now. God is everywhere. I mean, God is even in hell. That's another conversation for another time. I'm not trying to upset anyone. Hell is not the absence of God. right? It's something else. It's way worse than that. So... God is everywhere. We are in his presence now, but in an indirect way. Not in being able to see in a way where we can see his glory in its fullness, right? It's veiled now. At God's right hand, uninhibited, like unfiltered, unveiled, presence of God, right hand, there are untold pleasures there. We're talking. It's in the text. When you become a Christian... Your life on earth sometimes gets harder. Real talk. Your hope is like off the charts, right? Like we've got hope now and we've got joy that transcends circumstance now. And much of that joy and that hope, as we see here, is anchored in what's coming. 
It is about who God is now, God's faithfulness now, what Jesus is for me now, because I know that that secures for me eternity with God. Suffering and then glory is the pattern of Scripture. And so, when we become Christians, our lives and ways can get harder. But becoming a Christian, friends, in terms of long game, in terms of eternal perspective, is anything but self-denial when it comes to forever. It is about getting more joy that you would become a believer. It is about having joy that is eternal, that will never fade. Yes, we are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus in this life. That's true. And there will be no more crosses to bear in heaven. It's done. There will be no more sermons to preach. No more suffering to endure. No more work, toilsome work to be done. Everything we will do will be joyful and wonderful and awesome and pleasurable. It's the greatest decision that anyone has ever made to become a Christian. And it's a decision, as Scripture makes so clear, that no one makes without God first having chosen for us. We don't know exactly what heaven is going to be like. We don't know exactly what the new heavens and the new earth hold for us. But we know that it's going to be absolutely amazing. You can bank on that. The joy and the pleasure that exists there is what you were made for. It's what I was made for. Think about the greatest things that happen in your life now. It's like a candle compared to the sun. When you think about what it's going to be like. Think of the best day you've ever had. Ever. Like you can close your eyes now and be there. It's going to be so much better than that. It doesn't even merit a comparison, right? Every longing, everyone of your longings deep in your soul will be satisfied in God forever. As we behold the glory of Christ for eternity, we will be satisfied. As we fellowship together perfectly in a world without sin, we will be satisfied. So an encouragement to you, brother, sister, saint. Keep trusting Christ. Keep pressing on. Keep fighting the fight of faith. Keep striving and praying after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because it will be worth it. It will be worth it. When you have those days where you wake up and you think, man, like, is this, is this worth it? Like, I, I might, if I could, I would maybe leave Christ, but I can't leave him. First of all, praise God for his grace in keeping you. And second of all, take heart. It will absolutely be worth it. We will never look back on anything that we've ever given up. We will never look back on anything that we didn't experience and think that was a waste. We won't. No way. In no way. We will know in as much as we can. We don't, I don't know how much we'll be aware of of the past life in the new one. But in as much as any of that awareness would exist, we will know that everything was worth it. We will know, we will look back and know that God was faithful every single moment that we were breathing. Life and joy and pleasure will be realized 
in the new heavens and the new earth, and they will be realized through David's greater son, through the Holy One, the Messiah, the Christ, who will sit on the throne of David forever. On the very first Lord's Day, this is, we're landing the plane here to put everybody's minds at ease. On the very first Lord's Day, which could be called Resurrection Day, there were two disciples walking down the road to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, excuse me, to Emmaus. And you may know the story. These two disciples are walking along the road. Emmaus is a village like seven miles outside of Jerusalem. They're talking to themselves about what's happened, about everything that's gone on with Jesus, his death, and the leaders and the rulers and the hoopla, and everything's crazy in Jerusalem. They're devastated because they thought that Jesus was the Christ. Like, he's the one. He's going to save us, and God's kingdom's going to be established, and now he's dead. Like, what do we do? So Jesus appears to them on the road, and he asks them, what are you talking about? They don't recognize him, right? He's veiled. They don't recognize him yet. They will later. And the two disciples are like, are you like the only person around who doesn't know what's happened here in the last few days? Like, where have you been, bro? Like, it's crazy. It's pandemonium around here. You don't know about the things that have happened? And Jesus, I love his response. He's like, what things? What things? Tell me. So they tell Jesus about Jesus and the things that had happened and about their hopes that Jesus was the Messiah. And then what does he do? He corrects their wrong and foolish thinking. He tells them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer all of these things and be raised from the dead. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's what he did. What a sermon that would have been. God's plan of redemption accomplished through Christ. That was the message that he would have given. God's plan of redemption accomplished through me is what he would have been explaining and showing to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This has always been the plan. It's always been about me. Here's what God is doing. And he's doing it through me. The Lord would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And therefore we have redemption. And therefore we have hope. Let's pray. Our Father... You are an awesome God. You are gracious and merciful and all wise. Your ways are absolutely greater than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Even at the highest levels of our achievement, we could never come up with a plan as awesome as yours, let alone accomplish it. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. And you are the author and perfecter and the accomplisher of redemption. We praise you for that, God. We pray for all of us that we would live the life of faith. That we would live in utter dependence upon you. In utter reliance upon you. In absolute unshakable hope and confidence in you. We pray, God, that you would continue to work in us by your spirit. 
You've done that for your people through history, and we pray that you would do it in us today. We pray that you would continue to sustain our faith in your son, the Holy One, who never saw corruption. And we pray that you would bring us to be with him where he is, that we might behold his glory that you gave him before the foundations of the world. We pray for you to do all this good work in us and in our church, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.